All right, here we are. Nige. Here we are, George. Welcome, welcome to Men's Corner and thanks so much for coming. We're sitting yeah. here in beautiful sunny Eastbourne today. Yeah. And we just thought we would record this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we had this pl- planned from since last year, didn't we? Yeah, it's yeah, it's taken a while to get around to it, but yeah. you know, we we got there in the end and it's great to be in your new your new place. Such a lovely view. Lovely and it's view. a beautiful day. Yes, work in progress like us. So it, it came together in the end. Yeah, we, I wanted to do it in person because yeah, it's, yeah. it's different. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, of course. We do meet anyway, so <coughs> yeah. it's going to be good. And um, I just wanted to go over some, mm. from the very beginning actually, from because mm. uh, you have such a fascinating story, man. It's just, it's incredible. I don't know how much of it you're actually able to see, but to me, and I was like, wow, there's so many things that I wanted to ask you in particular details about mm. your story. But before even we begin with your story, yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about your parents and how much you know about them? Um, they are both from Trinidad and Tobago, which is the southernmost Caribbean island, uh, about six miles off the coast of Venezuela. Mm. And so my mother was from a village called Freeport um, in central Trinidad. And as far as I know, my dad was from another village nearby called Purcell. So they, and this is vague knowledge, this is quite vague, but you know, they they had a relationship and um, they, um, my mother was, I think brought up as a Muslim, because my grandfather, as I mean, I never knew them. Uh, I never really had much contact with them. But my grandfather was um, uh, a Hindu, but he converted to Islam to marry his wife, and hence the name Muhammad. Okay, hence the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because my grandfather converted to Islam to okay, marry his yeah. wife. That otherwise, I would have a different name, and I'm actually. Um, you know, I probably prefer the name Muhammad to the other name, but I'm even though I've struggled with the name Muhammad. But so um, I took my mother's maiden name, and my mother came over to the UK in 1960. But could you tell me before that, like, what was going on in in, in Trinidad? Then? In Trinidad, because I don't know anything. Yeah, I, I don't know too much to be honest with you. But Trinidad, 40% African, 40% Asian. And basically, uh, when slavery was abolished in 1834, I do believe, uh, Britain did a deal with India and brought thousands of uh, what they called indentured laborers. Oh, I know about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was a a diaspora. Lots of different nations have diaspora, a a dispersion of, uh, you know, throughout history that are scattered. So I actually am a diasporic person in that sense, because they dispersed from India and different parts of Asia to take the place of slaves as indentured laborers. So I descend from them. So the first boat, it was called the Fitzal Rajak, was the first boat to arrive from India in Trinidad in May 1845. And I descend from that. So um, they settled there, and um, you now obviously there was uh, Africans is there as well who went there. 
Um, so Trinidad, like I say, 40% African, 40% Asian, Indian. They don't get on, by the way. Their approach to life is very different. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and that is a story in itself. So... Um, so was it peaceful by the time your mom and, and dad grew up? Even though you didn't know anything about your dad, you, you, I, I, I bet you know something about your mom's childhood, do you? Um, a little bit. But I, you know, I, as you know, I was put in a foster home yeah. um, just after I was born in the UK. Because my mum came to the UK, fell pregnant, put me in a home. So um, I, my mother grew up in Trinidad and left at the age of 24. So... There was a big family. She had a big family. They were quite tight-knit. It's a little village, a bit like your village in Bulgaria. Everybody knew each other. Oh, yeah. So my, the village I, we know, I didn't grow up in this village, but my mother was from this village called Freeport. You know, everybody is close-knit. They eat together. They, you know, they're, they're very close-knit and cl they live close to each other. And, um, you know, she grew up in that village in a big family um, and left at the age of 24. I don't know too much else, uh, to be honest with you, about my mother's childhood. Um, yeah, that, so that's kind of, that's it really. Okay. It's quite vague. Okay. Yeah. But there is a story that you do know and, and um, that, so tell us about her coming over here. There was something about the boat, I remember, and it's even in the book, isn't it? In yeah, yeah. Um, now this is five years later. Um, so I was born in 1960. Okay. My mother came over to the UK to study nursing in 1960. And um, when she found out she was pregnant, she was she was she asked one of her colleagues, you know, if she knew of any where that she could put me in a foster home or something like that, because she wasn't able to look after me, which is what what she said. Okay. And um, anyway, she found somewhere. And so she, she basically put me into a foster home when I was eight weeks old. Cool. <clears throat> so I, was, I, I didn't know where I lived for the first eight weeks. Wow. It, it, it was somewhere in London. Uh, I don't know where. Um, so I was born in Surrey, in Woking in Surrey, and lived with my mother wherever she was living, in a bedsit somewhere in London, or maybe Putney, or maybe. Uh, I think it was somewhere in London, but I, I, I'm not too sure where I lived for the first eight weeks. So eight weeks old, she put me in a foster home. And so I grew up in the foster home. And, you know, I was I was the only, you know, coloured kid um, in an all-white foster home. Wow. Uh, and I went to an all-white school uh, as well. So, um, I, so the first five years, uh, you know, obviously I grew up in the foster home. And... Um, The first five years, again, is, is quite vague. I, I mean, I, I think I felt close to my foster mother. There was only a foster mother, not a foster father. And it was quite chaotic. Um, there were babies and children coming and going all the time. Right. Ringing the doorbell, you know, to be fostered. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it was quite chaotic. How many they could take, I mean? <laughs> well, I tell you, in the war, they had 21 children, man. Um, so nah, there wasn't 21 when I were there, you know, but there was, you know, there was right. children coming and going all the time. 
Yeah. <clears throat> so it, it's a bit chaotic, you know. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and um, but I I was I was very fortunate in in one sense because I I stayed there. I didn't go from one home to another. Lots of kids do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in one sense, I was fortunate. But what was one of my deepest struggles was um, the the kind of the cultural side because my mother was from Trinidad and I was born you know in England and I didn't even grow up with an Asian family so I grew up in a white foster home so this became an issue of identity as I yeah. it hit my teenage years and I'll get to that um, so um, yeah the first five years regarding the boat when I was five I'm just giving you a bit of context for the boat. So the first five years, I grew up in the foster home. Uh, and then when I was five, my mother, I think, I, as I remember, came and visited me every now and again, but she was like a stranger to me and I used to scream. Really? Yeah, because she was colored. Because wow. everyone was white in the foster home. Mm -hmm. And I used to scream when I saw her. Wow. I used to run. And because um, it's like, who is this, this strange lady, you know, mm. this strange woman. So I used to run and scream. And um, when I was five, she basically took me back to Trinidad, okay? And it was, now looking back, as I have looked into <coughs> childhood wounds, yeah. um, as I went into that journey, uh, that was massive what happened, when, what I'm about to tell you. So, because it was big, it was it was very deep trauma actually. And so, when I was five, my mother, you know, went through the process of trying to take me back to Trinidad to give me a home. And I I understand that her intentions were good. Yeah. She wanted to give me a chance with my physical blood relatives back in Trinidad. Yeah, a bit like you, if you were born here, your mum shows up and thinks, I think I should take him back to Bulgaria. Yeah. kind of thing you know because it's his culture yeah. yeah so that's that was her motive you know um, but I screamed for six weeks and I never stopped screaming and I was traumatised and so I went on a boat from Southampton the port of Southampton to Trinidad which is a nine day boat journey and I was traumatised on the boat man screaming I mean I remember you see I had bonded to my foster mother for the first five years just you know like they say you know the first five or seven years yeah. show me the boy and I'll show you the man mm -hmm. kind of thing yeah. so you know the, the in, in I think psychology you know the first sort of five seven years they really shape you especially your attachment to the mother mm -hmm. apparently um, so the bond to the mother which is the first five years um, is is very foundational for how you turn out mm. and your identity apparently uh, that's what I understand one psychologist guy called Balby so the attachment to the mother then the father takes over in a healthy situation yeah. so my mother takes me away I've bonded to my foster mother white foster mother there's no father uh, chaotic foster home I'm taken away, and when she's taken, taken me away, I'm being taken away what I thought was my mother. Yes. Obviously, I'm, I'm just five. Of course. Yeah. So I'm screaming my head off. And as I look back, it was like I was kidnapped. And I, I had to be shown that about 10 years ago, actually. You had to feel it again. I had to feel it again. Huh. 
and it was like I was abducted and actually kidnapped and when somebody used that word abducted and kidnapped I mean it hit me man big wow. time it, I've never been told that because you know what it's like man men are very good at denial yeah you know man we've been rowing down that river in Egypt a long time right you know denial mm -hmm. so you know we're very deeply ingrained in that and I had denied by telling myself actually my mum did the best she could now on one hand she did but actually I had to face the other side of that and the trauma of it and so um, we went to Southampton you know I'm screaming my head off from uh, you know how old were you again five you were five right? I was five yeah and you remember it oh yeah yeah yeah, I do remember. That says a lot. It, it, it's a vivid, vivid in my mind. Because wow. uh, I, I, my foster mother, we, we actually bonded, and um, in some way we bonded, me and my foster mother, and we, you know, we were both traumatized. Actually, I think my mother was just so, my foster mother was very distressed, mm. and. I was screaming. Well, you can imagine, you know, any any child who, who's grown up with their biological parents after five years, then somebody shows up and takes them away and says, actually, I'm your mother? Yeah. I mean, think how traumatic that's going to yeah. be. You know, it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah. So, on the boat, my mother is very seasick. She gets very seasick. And I'm traumatized. I'm screaming my head off. Nine days wow. on a boat. Nine days. So you never really calmed down? No, not, wow. for, si not for six weeks. Wow, you're a fighter, man. Yeah, yeah, not for six <laughs> you, you weeks. You don't give up. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I was traumatized. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, it, I mean I've, you know, I had to go back into that trauma. But So what happened afterwards, after those nine days? Well, we got to Trinidad nine days later, and, you know, we were met by um, relatives and who were my relatives, but, but the complete strangers for me, because I've just arrived on another planet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You know, I've just, like... Aliens have just kind of landed, got take abducted me into a spaceship and taken me into another another galaxy. Yeah, uh, and that's what it was like actually to me as a five year old kid. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, I'm there. Went to the village, stayed in my grandparents' house. I recall, I can still picture the house actually. And I went there when I was 38. Again, I'll tell you about that. And. Um, I've got vivid memories. Now look, some of those memories actually are quite good. I remember, for example, um, I remember this Saksuma tree at the bottom of the drive. So look, you've got a steep bit of a drive here. There was a Saksuma tree at the end of the drive and I'd go and pick Saksumas every day and I'd, meet, I'd go and meet my cousins coming home from school, you know. Um, so, you know, there was a hammock in the garden. Mm -hmm. They all have hammocks in the gardens in Trinidad. It's a good life in many ways. Uh, and, you know, because it's obviously it's the Caribbean, right? It's yeah. very hot and, and the rest of it. Um, you know, so there are some memories. I mean, I've, got, I've even got a scar on my arm from Trinidad. <laughs> and it's, you know, maybe, I'm, I'm kind of glad in a way, because it's like, yeah, that's a souvenir from Trinidad, <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, um, I know exactly where I got that scar, you know? But there's other scars, you know? Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, um, I, for six weeks, I, I, I was predominantly very traumatized and I screamed my head off. And my mum basically put me on a plane on my own and sent me back. Oh, really? After how long? After six weeks? Six weeks. So they couldn't handle you? Yeah, they, well, they realized I was screaming for my foster mother. Wow. 
I mean, I mean, no, I never stopped. I was screaming my head off uh, constantly. Wow. Although, like I said, you know, the good parts, the Saxuma tree and all the rest of it. But I mean, but that's the, in between the screaming. Yeah, yeah, that's in between <laughs> the screaming, right? Um, and um, a, a family friend actually came back with me. I didn't know her. I never met her before and never seen her before and ever again. But I, 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 I basically flew back. They put me on the plane with a family friend. I went back to London, to Heathrow, and, and came back to the UK. And I was met at the airport with, by my foster mother and one of my foster sisters, who was an hour, one of the oldest foster sisters, who came to the airport and picked me up. And I grew up in the foster home in, in England. So when did you leave the foster home? Um, well, I was... I tried leaving many times. Um, in my teenage years, 19, 18. You tried leaving? What oh. I mean is I, I tried running away one time. Okay. And I... Um, but because... Well, let's talk about that because yeah. it looks like your development... Something's been happening there between that moment when you came back and your teens. So what was happening in you then while you were there growing what, up? What was happening? In you between the time you came back yeah. and your teens when you wanted to leave? Yeah, this is a good question. And I've thought about this a lot actually. Now, when I came back, I came back, I was five, and I uh, went to school, obviously. <clears throat> but you know, one of the best things was that I, I, I became very interested in football. And it gave me something. And so one day, somebody noticed me playing football, okay? And this guy, he obviously thought I was pretty good at football. Hmm. And he wanted me to join his local football team. He's putting a football team together called Chesworth Tigers, okay? He came to, our, to the house and he had a talk with me and my foster mother and said that he would like me to be to join his football team. So I joined this football team, okay? Now, there's something about putting a football kit on. Now, I, I later on, I'm jumping the gun a bit, but it's relevant, okay? You know, I later worked with street kids in Kathmandu in Nepal and worked with street kids who've, who are on the street, okay? But when they put a football kit on, it gives them something. It gives them a sense of dignity. I'm a part of a team. Tribe. I belong so somewhere, like a tribal thing, but I belong to something. I'm part of a team. Mm -hmm. That sense of belonging yeah. and, and it, it actually, it does a lot for kids. Um, in, 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 you know, more than you realize actually. Mm. So anyway, I had that when I was seven or eight. So I got into football when I was seven or eight and I started foot, uh, supporting a football team. And as you said, tribal, and that was, that's very important, very significant actually, George. So I, I was part of this football team, football team for about, from the age of about eight till 12. And it gave me a, you know, every Saturday, I, I just loved Saturdays hmm. because I, um, I loved football and I was quite good at it. Um, the two things that I realized I was good at was spelling. I was good at spelling. Hmm. I still am. I don't know why. I was just good at spelling. I wasn't taught it. 
And I wasn't taught anything, really, uh, in the foster home. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I bonded to my foster mother, and I, um, you know, there was an affection between us, and, 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 you know, some of the other kids. I never got really close to the foster brothers and sisters. Uh, there was some... What about male role models? Did no. you have any? What's that? <laughs> Does that answer your question? Does yeah. that answer your question? Yeah. Um, what about the coaches? The football coach. Well, well, uh, it's funny because I was thinking that I'm driving here today, actually, George. Um, thinking actually, that guy who got me into the football team, he was the only male, the only guy that was in my life at that time. Hmm. But it was, it, it seemed quite quick. It, it went very quick, you know, those three or four years. Uh, it, it was just, he, he didn't really have much input into my life in terms of like, you know, guiding me or discipline or anything like that because he wasn't my father. No. So I didn't have any male role models, and I have never had male role models in my entire life. But you felt okay as a boy with other boys. You felt okay kicking the football, unlike me. I mean, I was very... I didn't feel like a man amongst men. You know what I mean? Boys. I mean, you played football with boys. So where do you think this came from? Well, I think because I, I felt that like I was good at it, and that gives you a sense of confidence. So is it because that guy showed, uh, sort of showed you that you were Well, he noticed me. Right. And it's like, you need to be noticed, right? Okay. Because if your father doesn't notice you, think, I think you're good at this, George. Mm -hmm. I see those skills in you. And you're really interested in that. You spend a lot of time doing that. You know, we need to have other people notice us when we're, when we're growing up. Yeah. To, uh, because that can guide our life. That can be where your skills are. Yeah. yeah. And what you love. That can be your heart. Yeah. It's like, I notice your heart. And, and, you know, if a child has that from a good, healthy parent, you know, that act actually can lay a foundation for, for their identity, their yeah. lives, their occupation, all the rest of it. I didn't have that. But, you know, male role models, you know, yes, you know, this guy, he got me into the football team. I, it was great wearing the kit, eating the oranges at half time. It was, you know, Saturdays were great. Um, but it, it was very minimal in terms of uh, a role model, I have Inputs, to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the input. You know, it wasn't like a father figure. He had two sons and it wasn't like a father figure as such. And there were no male role models in the foster home at all. None at all. It was a foster mother, but no father. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from the word go, from the time I was conceived in the womb, you know, rejection from the father, because when my father, I found out, found out that my mother was pregnant, he disappeared, never saw him, wow. you know, and he just... The child in the womb yeah, feels so in the womb, yeah, yeah. People don't know about this thing, Yeah, it's yeah. so true, yeah. So, you know, I went deep, and I had to go back there, you know, even back to the womb. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so from about eight to 12, I was into football, but here's the thing, man. I started smoke, when I, when I was 11, I, I just went reckless, man. From eight till 10, I was into the football, fairly stable. Used to go out and into the forest and collect conkers with some friends locally, some neighbors, as I recall. Got into football, man, big time. And I used to collect football albums, you know, and you'd compare, you know, yeah. some of the pictures that you'd collect yeah. with, your, with your, you know, school friends and with some of the neighbors, you know. And that was great. And that, that felt exciting because it, it kind of absorbed my life. You know, when I was like eight, nine, mm. ten, football kind of 
was my life. Yeah. And um, but then when I was eleven, when I went to um, um, secondary school, it, it just really went downhill. Did anything happen in particular, or just the whole thing as an experience? Well, um, well, actually, just one thing actually before I get to the secondary school, because then it starts to go downhill. Mm. Okay. You know, the amazing thing is that when I got back from Trinidad after that trauma, which actually started to really manifest um, later on in life and for the lifestyle that I had, uh, which was deeply rootless, and I'll go into that. But in terms of like how that affects your relationship with women, my f the first girl that I adored, I was seven years old. Because wow. we used to play Kiss Chase in the junior school. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, I still remember her, right? I was seven years old. She was an Italian girl called Michelle Massimo. And whenever we play Kiss Chase, I was always running after her. <laughs> because man, I loved her, you know? Because she was so lovely, she was so gorgeous, you know? And, um, you know, I even used to go and knock on her door where she lived and then run away. <laughs> but, I, which I, you know, looking back, George, I, I find that quite amazing, actually, because I think, I was traumatized big time from the boat journey, yeah. six weeks in Trinidad, you know, squeezing my head off, coming back on a plane. Um, you know, that was a huge, massive disruption yeah. in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of disruption, just make sure we keep the cable here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and yeah, despite that life, life changing actually, life changing disruption, I, I kind of had a degree of stability. We're at junior school, I'm just saying this before I get to the secondary school when it started going downhill, because I'm just remembering that, that actually, you know, I was into football, like I say, and I played for that school team as well when I was seven. Well, you know, I was in, in that team. And and, and this, this girl, Michelle, Michelle Massimo, an uh, Italian girl, part of a big Italian family. But man, I, I, I just loved her, man. And I just would always run after her when we played Kiss Chase. Hmm. Uh, so, and I just wonder, I thought, man, I, I had something that had presence. And she represented something that you never had. Yeah, yeah. So I, A it mother was, figure. Because I had no male role models, and I'd had that massive trauma just two years before. Mm. And I'm still a child, and yeah, I'm able to play Kiss Chase and actually, you know, run after this girl, you know? It's like, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I know we're, we are very resilient as human beings, yeah. but, uh, you know, you know I, I kind of look back on that and... Uh, Think, mm, there are blessings good. that are not not everything is stolen. No, no. I think yeah. depending on the also the spiritual covering of the family, whatever of the what's traveled down that's not been polluted. Mm -hmm. Some children, even with the trauma, there's mm -hmm. things that come through without trauma. Yeah, yeah. Speaking. Yeah, I mean, it's you know probably it's 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 never. I don't think it's ever going to be one hundred percent all dark and broken and pain and trauma. Yeah. You know, there will be other things that have life in it. You know. Mm. But we can't underestimate, uh, the, you know, the trauma uh, mm -hmm. and the yeah. pain, you know. So, yeah, anyway, so that was, uh, I'm 11 now, and um, I go to secondary school, and it started going downhill there. Okay. Yeah. What did that look like? <laughs> well, I started getting a criminal record. and Really? That early? Yeah. Wow. And smoking, drinking, fighting. Uh, I just went crazy. So when were you first arrested? Do you remember? Well, I was 12, 13, broke into a house. Wow. 
Um, but I see the kids that I was hanging out with were they were kind of in Borstal. Okay. Borstal was like a boys' prison, you know. And um, and I, I I became friends with a guy that had been to Borstal, and he was, you know, he was a bit of a criminal, you know. Is uh, breaking well, the. Was he older than you? I don't remember. Um, I think maybe. I remember his name, Richard Shepherd, and we used to call him Shep. But he was Shep. If you're watching this, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's been redemption, Shep. Yeah. You can change, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I got into some things with him, and we broke into a house, and um, yeah, committed a burglary. I was only twelve, thirteen. But I was drinking and um, I started drinking, started smoking at 11 when I went to secondary school and just went into chaos, just was really reckless. So what about the other boys around you now? You and this guy Richard, did the gang grow or did you sort of stay together as a core team? It, it, was, it wasn't for that long, Okay. but I yeah. first started getting in trouble with him. Right. And um, yeah. He, uh, I first started getting in trouble with him, but it, uh, you know, I didn't hang out with him for too long. Um, but you know, I constantly w was in trouble with the police from the age of 12, 13, right up until I was 20, and um, a reckless adolescence, chaos, reckless probation, even you know, still breaking the law when I was on probation. So, secondary school. 11 to 16 I, I just and, and you see this again you see um, because there's no male role models no foundation that was laid really you know even though yes I came back to the foster home and all the rest of it because I thought that was normal um, but you know I, I was getting in trouble all the time and it was becoming a habit and actually a bit of a lifestyle mm -hmm. I was hardly at school I would like what we'd just bunk off school all the time. I mean, that was like, I, I did that a lot. And I was hardly at school because we'd just bunk off the classes and go somewhere, get drunk and whatever. Hmm. Yeah, just chaos. And, um, and even, you know, breaking the law whilst I was bunking off school, drinking, getting drunk and, you know, breaking the law. So how did you relate to um, older men, like those policemen or teachers? Did you have problem with male authority figures? Well, I've got memories of like, at school, at secondary school, not good memories. Um, I hated certain subjects and certain teachers. There was this very strict teacher. Um, and one, one, I remember got good memories of like, he'd get me to stand up in front of the whole class and actually give an answer to a question that he knew I couldn't answer, and it was humiliating. And I, I tell you what, I used to dread double maths on a Thursday afternoon. Mm. How do I remember that? We remember things, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is like over 40 years ago, man. Thursday afternoon, I had double period of maths, mathematics. I hated it, man, because I just didn't get it. And it was seemed so long, a double period of maths. And this guy would get me up. Hamid, stand up. What's an obtuse angle? And I'd be humiliated. Hmm. And I would hate it. It was humiliating. 
and that sowed some bad seeds um, you know that sowed some seeds that were not good like what well because I internalized you know kind of the message of the wound rejection abandonment therefore you see if your parents abandon you they're supposed to be the, the only people in the world that you can trust and who love you right to go back to them no matter what happens outside yeah no matter what right there it's going to be a safe place right yeah the home it's going to be a safe place that's the theory <laughs> it's going to be a safe place your mother and father are meant to be the ones that you can trust more than anybody who love you unconditionally and you know they're safe that's that's what they're meant to be but if you have the complete opposite and you are abandoned by the very people in the whole out of all the world who are supposed to be safe and who you can trust and they're not they're the complete opposite and they're unsafe hmm. so it's like my mother got rid of me she just dumped me that's what it felt like you know she just I was inconvenient because she was a nurse a young student nurse she couldn't bring me up so she said and uh, so it felt like oh just dumping me you know inconvenience you know mm. um, okay. so you know that goes deep and see we in, that's what I mean is you internalize and you believe the message of that so what do you think you believed in front of that blackboard on the Thursday morning yeah so that's not for me or I can't deal with I'm useless I'm useless I'm, oh, yeah. I'm useless I'm no good at maths I'm no good at anything that can be you know uh, the message from the initial wound and then it's repeated it's like a secondary thing it's like a secondary trauma type thing you know um, where it's repeated and then it gets self-fulfilling prophe uh, prophecy wait way. yeah it can it gets consolidated and embedded in your heart it's like a, you know the arrows the message of the arrows the arrow gets lodged in your heart yeah yeah and there's a message with that arrow and then we tend to make agreements with those arrows so you know um, that's what I meant is yeah. the humiliation is the John Eldridge has a book which you know uh, sacred romance and there yeah, I think yeah. I think he talked about that's arrows. right that's it yeah well that's where I got it from and that's what you know it's very true very true and yeah with arrows comes a message it's not just hurt but what do you believe because of your hurt and then you become someone and the good news is that actually you don't need to stay but we'll, we'll get to there so so that's was like that was what was like for you at, at, at school um, in terms of your criminal activities what happened after that you started first with Richard with Shep and then then did you progress onto heavier crimes because did you were you a football hooligan or something like that yeah I was yeah I mean I, well I you know I got into football hooliganism but again it's like you said George, what did that look like well um, well first of all if I just backtrack a little bit um, when I first broke into the house the first thing I did to break the law um, it was it was fundamentally about identity it was about identity okay and and so an identity was starting to be shaped it was a turning point in my life we all have turning points in our lives yeah and those turning points can be for good or bad um, and they you know the painful turning points you normally shut our heart down you know you might you take a vow you, you see so you make inner vows I'm not gonna let this happen to me again or whatever it is you know you know usually I will always or I will never that's mm -hmm. a clue yeah that's a clue that you've made a vow right and that you know we can still be doing that still making agreements with that so 
I think I'm backtracking just to say that actually without that foundation in your childhood you haven't got anything to build on and you're like it's like Gordon Dalby with that Powerball at the yeah. end of his book Sons and Fathers it's such a powerful Powerball the lion cub is it Sons of the Father Sons of yeah, the Father yeah, yeah. so the lion cub cut off from its mother hmm. um, very early it bonds to the mother but the lion cub is cut off from the mother and then the lion cub is roaming through the jungle hungry and it's in a story of survival mm. but the lion cub bonds to sheep it meets some sheep <laughs> as part of the parable and it bonds to these sheep and then it starts to make noises like a lamb instead of a lion <laughs> because its identity is being formed in a wrong way because it's been abruptly cut off from the mother. It's roaming through the jungle, hungry, living in a story of survival. We all know that, don't we? Oh yeah, yeah. Jungle, hungry, story of survival. So basically, a story of, that was the script that was being written for me when I look back. And we can all live out of a script that we feel has been written for us. So when things we, like bad things happen to you, when you suffered, then what, what were some of the vows, internally, subconscious vows that you took? I would never uh, trust or... Yeah, probably I would never trust. I will never amount to anything, things like that? Yeah, I, I will never... I think that's a very... It's a deep question, man, because I think, looking back on my story, which is going to unfold as I, as, I, as I begin to tell you, but rootlessness and not knowing what a home was like okay. I've never known what a home is like right. and I still don't mm. so in 62 years I've never known what a home is or even a family yeah so I think deep inside probably unconsciously I would never know what a home is um, and look I'm, I'm kind of partly guessing but I, I as I look back in the way I live my life for example I, I went on you know to move 50 to 60 times in my life that's huge. Man. I mean, you know, what is that about? I've never met anyone who's moved that. Well, yeah, <laughs> there you go. What's that about? Well, that's about rootlessness. 50 to 60 times. Yes, I counted once. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 50 to 60 times. Now that is like, that's not, that ain't healthy, right? Yeah. So what is that, what's that about? Well, that's a defining thing. and It's a symptom. It's a symptom. And it's a massive symptom. And it's a symptom of, um, I believe, an unconscious vow that I will never know what home is like. And it goes back to five on the boat going to Trinidad. Foster home, first five years. Abrupt, abrupt, you know, huge abrupt disruption of my life. Boat, trauma six weeks, back in England, growing up in a home. But then it starts to manifest. Yeah. It starts yeah. to manifest. And it does. It starts to manifest. Yeah. So, um, you know, no male role models. So in terms of the criminal, um, in other words, you know, it wasn't, don't get me wrong, I didn't go into major crime, but I could have done. I mean, I, you know, I ended up in prison when I was 19 and I'll get there. But I, you know, I'm 13, 14. I, I had my first girlfriend at 14, 15, sorry. And, uh, and I was big, but I'm still breaking the law. And she's got a family. She's white. She's got a mother and father, brother and a sister. It's a, no well, I say normal, you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, It's a conventional status quo yeah. family, yeah? 
but this is alien to me. It's like, what, family? I don't speak that language. And I haven't really, I haven't learned that language well in my life. So I think that looking back in answer to your question, it was an identity that was being formed because of the turning point. Breaking the law when I was 12, 13, huge turning point. But then other turning points of when I was five. So these turning points, they shape our identity, I believe. Yeah. They, they actually shape our story mm. and our identity because of what we do with those turning points. Yeah. So I'm, we're, I'm talking traumatic, massive disruption, turning points, deep wounds. And you didn't have a father who, if you went home to yeah. saying, I'm not gonna be good at anything, yeah, to yeah. correct you say no, you will be and I'll show you how, I'll yeah. teach you, I'll, yeah. you know. You didn't have anyone to redirect the flow of your internal yeah, yeah. energy where you were going. Yeah, exactly. And although my foster mother, you know, she fed me and clothed me, but that's it. So I had phys physical needs met. Yeah, yeah. I was fed and I was clothed, but that's it, nothing else. No, you need a father. So there was more, deprivation. Yeah. There was deprivation of emotional needs, of you know, vocational needs, what skills I had and things mm -hmm. like that. None of that was met. Uh, and so I, you know, um, that was a huge um, rupture within my being in terms of occupation. And that's been a major part of my story. So in terms of the criminal thing, it was about bonding and attachment because right. you attach to something, right? <laughs> so if you don't attach to your mother and father, you will attach to something else. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I believe that we are created to bond to, to God, to our creator. So if you don't bond to God, you will have bonding substitutes. But isn't it interesting because God doesn't just drop this bond from the sky. No. If you haven't bonded with your mom and dad, yeah, yeah. you find it hard to bond with anything, Absolutely. including God. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, maybe especially God. Yes. Because yes. trust issues, you see. Mom, dad, whatever. Because yeah. of trust, you see. Yeah. If your trust has been violated in those formative years, which it has been in countless numbers of people, men and women yeah. in the world, you know, and people listening to this, will know exactly what I'm talking about, that their ability to trust was violated and broken in those formative years. Yeah. And then if you internalize the wound, you have contempt for the wound, especially men. Mm -hmm. If you have contempt for the wound, then you're living out of shame. There underneath, there is shame. There's sadness, there's anger, uh, there's layers. Yeah. But if you get to the root without that foundation from your from the childhood, you know what, what's underneath. What, what's what's the foundation then, if it's not a good foundation? Uh, well, obviously abandonment. There's no identity. Huge vacuum. What fills the vacuum? Shame. Mm. Voices. You're no good. You make agreements with it. Yeah, I'm no good, and you have contempt for it. Mm. Because the stereotype of masculinity in the West is you've got to be strong. Yeah. You can't be weak and you mustn't show weak uh, you know mustn't show weakness and you above all you cannot cry. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we have contempt for the wound to the extent that we buy the stereotype. Yeah. of the macho version yeah. of masculinity. And now it's a new stereotype. If you've noticed. Well, yes, um, yeah. Now it's the other one. So now, it's, yeah, yeah. it's both we we're, we're yeah. basically, you know, yeah, yeah. screwed both ways. Um wow. So yeah. maybe the criminal was who knows, it was, 
a destructive identity because you either create or, or destruct, right? You either will create something good and healthy to offer the world, to offer other people. Yeah. And that's healthy masculinity. It offers initiating life-giving energy that creates, yeah. that gives life mm. to others. If, if you're living out in the wound, you will actually self-destruct and you'll destroy other things. So I was going into destruction, self-destruction, through breaking the law. And identity was being formed out of that. And all this time you had a girlfriend. Well, I had a, yeah. And I mean, you were very young, I mean. I was 15 to 17, I had a long, that was a long-term relationship for me at that age. It was huge for me. No family, going, you know, chaotic lifestyle, breaking the law, no qualifications when I left school, getting into football hooliganism, tribalism, another form of masculinity and although I understand that form of masculine energy being expressed yeah in a kind of a tribalism you need that I, I needed but that. not in that way <laughs> but as you know George yeah if boys aren't initiated it's like the African proverb yeah. right yeah. you know if young boys aren't initiated they will burn down the village just to fill the heat mm -hmm. um, why did I do that well because they haven't been initiated into manhood and that's fundamental to African culture isn't it uh, and has been for thousands of years but you know we don't do that in the West and we talk about the warrior because in the West the image of the yeah. warrior in the past was not wrong it was not wrong that the man should be a warrior yeah the trouble is when there's no initiation to bring out the warrior out of a boy in a good healthy way then all that's left is well I mean well it's interesting because at 16 I tried to join the merchant navy and what I really so those things that were going on in me right deep in my soul is that what was I bonding to? How was my identity being formed? Yeah, because that is the underlying kind of factors that are driving you, even though we don't realize it at the time. I'm attaching to something, I'm bonding to something. Those attachments are being formed and they're forming my identity because there's an attachment deficit, right? It's just, you know, basic kind of psychology, right? Um, so, what am I bonding to? Well, I'm, bond, I'm bonding to something that is destructive. I'm bonding to fighting. I'm bonding to alcohol. I'm bonding to violence. I'm bonding to the macho version of manhood. Um, at 17, I'm covered in tattoos. I'm getting tattoos. So all these tattoos are from that time? Yes. <laughs> They so, look like that. <laughs> so between 17 and 18, I had nine tattoos wow. on my chest and arms. Yeah. What's that about? That's oh, There's something deeper about tattoos. Uh, and I think it is to do with that tribalism. It's a sense of belonging. Yeah. And an identity, some kind of identity is being formed and you're attaching to something. It's kind of anti-establishment. Because you're becoming kind of, you know, some people call it deviant, like subculture. So you attach to a subculture because you, you are not getting established in mainstream society. You're not going to, you're not leaving school with qualifications and then going to university and getting a good job and earning good money. You're not doing that, right? You're going the opposite direction through crime, football hooliganism. So in answer to your question, it's, it's about these other fundamental factors, George identity you're attaching i was attaching to destructive things sort of tribalism now look i felt alive when i'm when i'm set when i'm going up to chelsea you know on saturday right 
I'm with a, a, a group of people. We're going up to watch our favorite football team, okay? And this is coming out of like from when I was seven, getting into football, right? And, you know, we go from on a pub crawl, right? From the King's Road, a well-known road in London, King's Road. And we go on a pub crawl all the way down King's Road until we get to the football stadium. We're obviously a bit drunk. In the mid seventies, punks, punk rockers were everywhere. And it was fantastic. They were so vibrant. Things were so alive, you know? Punk rockers were every man with their spiky Mohicans and, you know, all kinds of colors. And, you know, we were into football, hooliganism. Different tribalism was going down, you know? Subcultures, this is what it's about. So I was attaching to a subculture. No family, no male role models, no qualifications. Long-term relationship with my girlfriend at the time. I even tattooed her name on my hand. Yeah. Right? Because that's what kids were doing at school. They were tattooed, they were making, doing self-made tattoos. And, and I actually tattooed my first girlfriend, my long-term relationship with, with uh, Jane, from 15 to 17. Mm. I even tried tattooing her name on my hand and it worked. You did it yourself? I did it myself. Wow. My dad did a similar thing when he was like 10. Wow. He, he still got the tattoo with a yeah. broken heart or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it worked, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, yeah. it worked, man. So would you say that you were in a gang? Was it a gang or more of a, because you had the no, football in common? No, not really a gang. So crime wasn't the main objective, it, it but was, it just happened. It was similar to a gang, but it wasn't a gang. It was tribalism. And we'd go up and we'd, you know, the, the, fo the football thing, um, now this is also again about masculinity. It's um, you're, you're bonding to a, like I said, a kind of a, a, a macho version of masculinity that is about you know fighting your hard exterior kind of thing. And um, you know I, I that's what I was leaning toward. That's what I was attaching. So it was a tribal thing. So when we're in. In in the crowd, in your in the end where your football team is, we called it you know the end where the football end the end of the stadium. Okay. So your crowd, your supporters are in the same end, okay, and you're singing, and you're chanting these songs against the other team supporters. <laughs> now that's interesting, yeah, because it's like singing, right? And you're singing all together and you learn the songs and you know the songs. What's that? What's going on there? You give yourself to a greater purpose. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, and it gives you what feels like life. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when you follow your team, you go to another team, you travel up on the train, you're singing songs on the train. Wow. You know, walking through the town, you're singing songs, you know, you're having a few beers. And then you try to go into the other, the home team's football end, you try to steam into them and fight them to take over their end and that's what we would do you know and, and it was it was a buzz you know it's like yeah we're going to take this team's end we're gonna, and there's a reason yeah. why it's a buzz Nigel. and i want to say to people because people look at it and they just say well that's negative that's bad well the action itself is bad but where is it coming from where's it coming why from? is it feeding something in your soul is your soul bad or is it just misdirected yes because exactly. men first exactly. men have a warrior energy that has to be directed at something. And also men are meant to gather together yeah. around something bigger and build. I mean, we're builders of the world, of our world yeah, yeah. and everything around us. So, right. you know, it's easy to look at this and, and just other people can say, oh, well, that was just bad. So you need something new. Well, no, you need to direct the same energy towards something good. Yes. That's the, so you were in the shadows. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and that's a very good point because 
I think when you start to understand and you get some insights and clarity about actually what's going on, what's going on at a deeper level? Because you're probably trying to get needs met that haven't been met. Exactly. Yeah. By a healthy, strong father. You've had no strong, healthy, masculine presence. Role models. You've not been initiated in manhood. Let alone a whole group of them. Yeah, yeah, men. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is why kids join gangs in inner cities. It's like a surrogate father. Um, you know, they are bonded into a gang. And what do they get from a gang? Well, they get a sense of identity, initiation, rituals. You have to be tested. So, you know, I put myself through all of that. I didn't realise it at the time. So when I was 18, 19, I hitchhike around Europe. Yes, tell us about that. That's right. a story in itself. Yeah, yeah with, a, with a friend of mine. We, we both supported the same team. He was, a, he was a Chelsea supporter like me. And we used to go to all the games together. But then we hitchhike around Europe together. So it's like, this is a bit different. But it was about adventure. Huh. It was about being tested. It's like, as Eldridge says, right, John Eldridge, you know, the first stage is, have you been the beloved son? Have you had a father who delighted in you? Who was your beloved son and you knew it. You knew that your father loved you and delighted in you and actually has communicated that. Taking you out and done things, you know, taught you things, fishing and hunt, whatever. Uh, if you've had that, you've got a good foundation and you won't doubt yourself. But lots of men don't have it. Countless numbers of men don't have it. I didn't have it, yeah. And so the next question in that next stage, late teens, early to late 20s, what is, the, what is the issue? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to learn skills, to hold a job down, to learn a trade, to pursue a woman, marriage, have children, stabilize, contribute to society? Do I have what it takes to do those things? Well, I can tell you now, if you've not had that foundation, you've got serious doubts. Because what is actually defining you is a deep sense of inadequacy. Hmm. And that's one of the deepest wounds that we feel as a man in our soul, because we are wired for that. Men tend to hide in places that make them feel competent. If a man feels competent in something, that's where they hide out. But he, what, men don't tend to step out of what they feel competent in. Once they feel incompetent and inadequate, they don't go there. Mm-hmm. A lot of men don't go there. Hence the division. You have intellectual men who purely just 90% just brain or physical men who are practical, but they just... just it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're still hiding out. Yeah. In academia, they hide in their head. Yeah. Right? But they're cut off emotionally yeah. and they're emotionally shut down. So they're not able to feel mm. certain things. But then so are men who are practical, yeah. a mechanic, a yeah. builder. They also are not able to feel certain things because they're hiding out in a macho version of manhood. And they're giving messages like, don't mess with me, man. Yeah. You know? So in other words, you know, uh, I'm holding the world at bay because I don't want a relationship with you. Because you might discover how inadequate I actually am. Yeah? Exactly. It's like, I don't want you to get anywhere near that inadequate little boy that yeah. I suspect actually is in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Man, we do not want to go there, right? And so, um, yeah, so 
Um, so adventure, you, you're hitchhiking. Yeah, yeah, at 19. Oh, I'm still into football hooliganism, but I'm beginning to change a little bit. Less now, crime, less violence. Um, Same. Yes, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, actually, actually, George, yes, I think there was less. Because, now, when my girlfriend gave me up and she, she, you know, she packed me up and went with another guy immediately, a guy that I knew that I was actually hanging out with. Oh, wow. You know, that went, uh, you know, that was deep, that went deep, yeah. uh, as it would do, because I had somebody who loved me, right? Wow, I yeah. didn't know that this happened. Do yeah. you think this was repeating the story of your mom abandoning you? Well, that's Because that was already inside of you. Well, that's an interesting... Being attached to that female and then boom. I don't know. No, no, that, that is a very interesting insight, actually, and a penetrating question. And um, you're obviously a psychologist, George. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, it's, that's a great question. It's a very sharp insight. And I think probably yes, um, because, you know, we're complex beings, you know, and um, I think, yes, it was being reduced, you know, criminal activity. I think I was mellowing out. I start to mellow out. But look, now I'm, I'm going to be talking about a major time, a turning point again. Yes, yes. Because I see when I look back on my story, I, I love the idea of turning points mm. because we all have them. Yeah. We all have turning points in our story and they define and shape our identity for good or bad. And when we look back on those turning points, you know, we connect the dots. It gives us a perspective our story yeah. and it can help us to understand to have understanding and actually compassion on ourselves yeah. so I was mellowing down a little bit when I was 18 because I was wanting adventure I hitchhiked around Europe and I was really looking ex looking forward to it really excited about it because I tried to get in the merchant navy when I was 16 what happened I didn't get in do you know why I didn't have any qualifications okay um, and I was gutted I, I really wanted to go in the Merchant Navy because I was longing for adventure even then. Wanting adventure at 16. With other men. Yeah, with other men. Yeah, and, and well, yeah, interesting you used to say that because maybe the football hooliganism, tribalism, was like unconsciously, you know, trying to meet my own needs in a yeah. destructive way. But then Merchant Navy would have been a bit more positive. I didn't get in. And that also was an important sort of you know, oh man, another disappointment. So what did I do? I, I, I got my own adventure. That's why joys, boy, sorry, boys join gangs because they are basically meeting their own initiation rites of passage. Because if his father isn't initiating him, then you, you basically create your own. Yeah. And that's what boys do. They create their own. So the needs don't go away. If the, main, if the world of men, let's say represented by the Navy, mm. rejects you, mm. then you'll be like, okay, I'm going to go to the the other uninitiated boys, I'm going to go in the shadow then, because the need doesn't go away. Well, I, 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 father. well I think going, hitchhiking around Europe was another version of adventure because I didn't get it in the Merchant Navy. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I took my driving test when I was 17 and I failed. Uh, and then again, I, I took it again a year later when I was 18 and I failed again. Okay. Now look, let me tell you one thing, which I think you will know about, um, is that when men haven't been fathered, and they haven't been parented. You take failure and disappointment really deeply because it's a reminder. It can be a, a deep reminder of, you're useless, I don't want you. I'm giving you away, I'm dumping you in this home. Let somebody else look after you.
Mm. So when you fail, it goes real deep because you lack the inner resources to be resilient enough to be able to keep perspective and think it's not a major big deal. It's not a crisis. It's yeah. not a defining factor. And it's not the final verdict on me. But it feels like the verdict on you. So for you, it was not a question of what you can do or should do better, but it just landed on your identity. It was no longer about, well, I should learn or, or I failed at this, but it was more about I'm useless. Yes. It lands on you and it lands on the wound. Mm-hmm. It lands on the wound because you haven't had the male role models and the support to be able to walk through that and to understand what that is about, as most men don't, right? in this society that is very sick and so you have a huge vacuum lots of things huge destructive things you know rush into the vacuum and so I was seeking for my own adventure but again you see I'm being tested because that's what young boys do right in the teenage years they test themselves what's that about why why do we need to be tested well because you're now in the next stage of manhood and if you have not been, if you haven't had the beloved son stage, you haven't been delighted in by your father or if of any father f- figure, you'll have serious wounds and doubts, huge vacuum, identity confusion. So what's filling the vacuum? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you try to get these needs for yourself, but you're, you're, you're like the lion cub in the jungle. You're like, yeah. you're going through life without a map. It's like, you know, I don't know where to go. Where am I going? Who am I? And where am I going? I don't even know where I'm going. I don't know who I am. You know, and you live by impulse. You live by instinct because you're like an animal. And you basically, people that have had serious foundational wounds, um, they live by instinct. Right. You live in a story of survival. And you live by instincts. You, you, you can't plan for the future. Mm. So you don't think ahead. You don't have discipline. You can't delay gratification. Mm-hmm. Because you are living for the moment. Because you're in a jungle. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in Europe. I'm hitchhiking around Europe. Where did you go first? Which country? Um, we went to France. From here to France? Yeah, yeah. So we, went, we got the ferry to France. And we, we hitchhiked across France. And we hitchhike right down to the south of France. Wow. And, um, you know, we're stopping off on the way and um, we have a tent. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we got right down to the south of, uh, south of France. And it, and it was great. It was, a, you know, we're stopping off in vineyards trying to get work, great picking and things like that. Okay, and so you worked. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to get work on the way, different jobs, you know, and... Um, you know, we got work in Germany, in, in Munich, um, working in a factory as well. Um, and, um, you know, so we're just doing different things, different jobs, you know, whatever we can do. Again, you, you know, you meet other travelers. Oh yeah, this, this vineyard is wanting great pickers. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you know what it's like. You just, you know, you meet other travelers and stuff like that. So I was, you know, I, I realized I, I wanted to travel. And I've loved traveling ever since. And I still love traveling. Mm. So anyway, uh, we hitchhike around Europe and we, you know, we uh, go to the south of France and we try to get to a kibbutz in Israel. 
we thought, yeah, that'd be a good, you know, good thing. We wanted to do that, you know. So we went down to Athens. We hitched all the way down to Athens in Greece through Austria. So we went into France. Yeah, sorry, then we went into Germany, worked in Munich, went through Austria, hitchhiking all the way. And um, so this was being tested, you see. We were, te- we were being tested. Do I have what it takes? Yeah. So in a sense, we were, as I look back, it's like, that's what I was trying to give myself. Do I have what it takes? And I was providing that for myself. And actually I did have what it takes to some extent. And so we hitchhiked through Austria and then through Greece, right down to Athens. And then we got a ferry, or we tried to get a ferry uh, uh, to Israel to go on a kibbutz, yeah? So we thought, oh yeah, that'd be a good idea. Go on a kibbutz, stay there for a few months. Uh, lots of people do that, um, but we 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 weren't able to do it. We didn't have enough money for the boat ferry, and there was another reason I can't remember. But anyway, we were stuck in this port called Piraeus, and uh, we basically we had about six pounds English pounds to <laughs> left. We had no money, hardly any money left, and we were stuck. So what did you do? We thought, man, what are we gonna do? So we felt we, we were stuck there. We were a long way, man. Uh, you know, this kind of port called Piraeus, quite near Athens. Um, we, we thought, what are we going to do, man? So what we decided to do was hitch all the way back to Munich and get work because we worked in Munich and it was okay. a good place to get work. But it was a long haul and it was winter. Oh, my goodness. And we had no hardly any money. But before that, we, we got this work with this, this uh, juggernaut driver. He was from London. And we, we basically built his juggernaut. The whole of his juggernaut was, it was down and we had to build it up again. I mean, man, that was hard work. Really hard graft. So at least you proved to yourself that you can work hard. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I'd worked on lab- uh, building sites. Right. I worked on a lot of building sites. But before that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. When I was a kid, when I was left school. Mm-hmm. I worked in manual labor, factories, building sites. All right. I, I, but I'd just walk around building sites and get laboring jobs because I had no qualifications. So I, I, I knew how to work. I could work hard. You know, laboring was hard, you know. And um, so we built, we, we kind of built up this guy's juggernaut thing. But after that, something happened. I, I remember yeah. you telling me about it in terms of um, your hitchhiking adventures yeah basically we hitchhiked back to uh, Munich and we were we had no money but I I had to steal so I became a good thief uh, and I had to steal to eat because we had no money to eat and we were eating people's leftovers when was that on, the, on that journey yeah from Athens back to uh, okay. Munich when you didn't have money winter we were sleeping rough. So you tapped into survival mode. Yeah, exactly. Right. But actually, you know, I had lived in survival mode yeah. Uh, yeah. a little while and um, probably was good at it. And I became good at it later on as I got older. So what's the biggest thing that you stole on that journey? Uh, well, the biggest thing was money and um, a wad of cash at a train station. and. We hitchhiked through Greece. It took ages to get through Greece. It was hard slog. And then? Yugoslavia, which was the old Yugoslavia. Okay, yeah. 
next door to us, more or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we hitchhiked through Yugoslavia, uh, and it was a hard slog, you know, army everywhere, different country, communist. Yeah. And we looked a bit out of place, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, um, we got to this uh, little, uh, little village, this little town, and we were going to spend our last pennies. We just had pennies left. We were sleeping rough. My friend was ill. Wow. He had asthma. Sleeping rough in the winter. Wow. And, um, you know, it was a long haul, really hard. And um, we're at this train station. We thought we'd spend our last few pennies on a train to Zagreb. And um, I, I just saw this wad of cash. Basically, I stole it. Stole the cash. Was it a pri like a private person, citizen? No, no, it was a, a train station. Okay. And there was a wad of cash there, but the guy that sold the tickets, he wasn't there. <laughs> so I thought, I'm having that. <coughs> you know, we are hungry, we're yeah. cold, we're tired, we're in a bad, we're in bad shape. Yeah. It's winter. We need a break, man. It's like I'm looking at that. I'm thinking I'm having that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Bearing in mind, I had a bit of a criminal background. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, so I said to my friend, I said, okay, look, you look out for me. So I went, I got the money, stuffed it in my army combat jacket. We're running down the road and we're singing. I'm thinking we got away with it. Munich, Munich, here we come. <laughs> I'm telling you, within two minutes, we were surrounded by police. Wow. In this small town. It was a big deal, man. It was a wobbly in this small town in Yugoslavia. Tito was still president, communist oh, country. Wow. And um, it was a big deal. People are coming out of their houses with planks of wood and all kinds of tools and that. Really? Oh, yeah. And we're in the middle of the road in this little village just down the road from the station. It didn't last five minutes. And we're surrounded. Police cars, it's a huge deal, man. And we're surrounded by police. And uh, obviously, you know, we don't speak any Yugoslavian. So all of a sudden, a police just whacks me around the head with a truncheon. Wow. And several police just severely beat me up with truncheons, pointing rifles at me and, uh, you know, rifle butt in the face. And wow. Well, I've got handcuffs on or in the road and they're just beating me, man, with truncheons. Wow. Uh, and they, they broke my hand, but they didn't touch my friend. Really? Yeah, yeah. I Why do you think was that? I don't know. I mean, it's probably because I did the wobbly. <laughs> yeah, that's a logical explanation. <laughs> but I, maybe that was it. Maybe that was something to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> they, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, they didn't touch my phone. But anyway, um, me and me and my friend Pete, we knew that this was this was a major big deal. We were we probably knew that we were going to go to prison because wow. this was like a, a big deal it's a robbery in a communist country <laughs> they threw us in the van I'm, my face is covered in blood my hand is broken handcuffs we get to the police station and actually it's a relief to be thrown into their cells because I'm not getting beaten up anymore Yeah. and we're both in the cell at the same time we're both in the cell and we're looking at each other man and we are scared kids man you know how old were you at 19. 19, wow. Yeah, my friend was 20, I think. But I was 19. You know, bearing in mind my background, and it's like yeah. now it's like I'm facing a big rap, you know, heavy rap, you know. So, um, 
we kind of knew that we were going to go to prison. We, you know, we, 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 were, we didn't have any illusions about that. And sure enough, next day, you know, uh, they put, took us in a van, drove us on a journey to this little village called Seasack uh, near Zagreb. And, and so we were in prison. Wow. Yeah, and I was just 19. It, what com- did communist prison look like to you? Yeah, well, um, I mean, this is now... Over it's in the 80s, isn't it? 1979. 79, okay. So this is a long time ago, man. This is over 40 years ago. What was that like? Well, I was, you know, I was thinking I was going to have to take more beatings uh, because I'd been beaten up badly by the police. I was thinking, you know, am I going to carry on getting beaten up, you know, yeah. and in the, in the prison? But actually, I didn't get beaten up. But um, I was in three different cells, and um, the first cell, I really got on well with the guys. So the inmates were okay. It was the police that was. Yeah, the police. The problem. Do you know, I even got on with uh, the uh, the wardens. I learned to speak a little bit of Yugoslavian, because I would have been Serbian, would I? Um, I think Serbian. No, Croatia, Croatia. But I mean, Serbian was must have been the main language. Um, of Yugoslavia, isn't it? Well, it was... where the village was, where I was in prison, the, the, the small town, is in now is in Croatia now. So did okay. So maybe that was the language then. Yeah. Or was I, Serbian the main? Well, well, I, I know that the the village, the, the town of Sisak, where I was in prison, is in Croatia now, because a good friend of my wife, a very good friend of my wife, is from that town. Crazy. Can man. you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> She's Croatian and she's from the very town that I was in prison in. And she was a child when I was in that prison, I found out. Crazy. Yeah. That's just wild, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it was Croatian. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I learned to speak a little bit of, you know, you had to say something to the warden every time they opened the door. Like, don't hit me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I go home? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I actually got on well. I mean, one guy, when I was in the first cell, where he tried escaping? He tried escaping. Yeah, because our our cell was right by the road, and he used his spoon to dig a hole. That's classic, isn't it? It's is, classic. It <laughs> is. Yeah, it is a classic. <laughs> it was brilliant. You know, we'd hide. You know, and, did uh, he get anywhere with that? Uh, no, I don't think he did. I think he probably got caught. But it was. It was just. It, I guess it was exciting. You know, what talk I mean? about adventure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like you know, I didn't want that type of adventure. But uh, here I am in a communist prison. And I ended up in a communist prison cell. What then, about, wasn't there a murderer there that you were telling me about? Yeah, yeah. That used to give you cigarettes or something. Do you know, do you know I actually remember his name. His name was Costash. <laughs> and he had this Mexican moustache. And he looked mean. <laughs> but you know, he was a great guy. And he had a bit of a rep, you know. It's like, yeah, don't mess with this guy, you know. Because um, it could cost you your life. Anyway, one day, uh, I'm in the shower. And because um, you only had... Had a shower, I don't know when it was, once a week or something like that. It's probably not the safest place to be. No, absolutely. Anyway, this guy is in the shower and I'm in the shower with him, next to him. And it's like, okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the beginning of a wonderful friendship. (laughs) I wanted adventure. (laughs) There you go. There you have it. (laughs) But you know what? He didn't speak a word of English. Apparently, he, he murdered this guy in a bar or something like that. Anyway, 
you know, we're trying to make conversation and, you know, he hardly any English, but he's trying to communicate to me. And one of the things he says to me, he calls me English, right? English, cigarette. I thought he was asking me for a cigarette and I didn't have any cigarettes, okay? And I smoked at that time, obviously. And um, English, cigarette, cigarette. And um, I, I thought, I don't have any cigarettes. What's he gonna do to me <laughs> if I don't have a cigarette, you know? <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, no cigarette, no, no cigarette, something like that. And he, and he said, uh, okay, something like this. Anyway, we finished the shower and then suddenly he burst into my cell and he gave me about 200 cigarettes out of his own pocket. And at that time, I was sharing another cell with just one guy who was horrible and I wanted to kill him. <laughs> he was a horrible little guy. Should have introduced him. And he didn't give me any cigarette at all. He didn't wow. give me a cigarette, okay? Never did he give me a cigarette. You always give somebody a cigarette, man. Yeah. And especially in prison. And um, well, actually cigarettes are rare actually. But anyway, this guy, he threw a whole pack of cigarettes, about 200 cigarettes, mm. out of his own pocket. And I never forgot that. And, and, I, and this guy, he couldn't give me one cigarette. This guy, Kostash, with a bit of a rep, he was a bit of a nasty guy, he gave me about 200. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So, so anyway, now I was in there, it's interesting, I was there six weeks, I was in Trinidad six weeks. Oh, wow. So like another trauma, right? Um, wow, so, prison maybe was repeating that. Yeah, it's interesting. It was Being the same. taken somewhere it was exactly the where same. you're supposed to belong because you're a criminal when you stole this thing. Yeah, thank you, George. <laughs> 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 but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, I do know what you mean. Yeah, wow, yeah. six weeks there as well. Do you know, it's funny. I've, I've only just realised that. What I've just said. Yeah. I've just realised it was six weeks. Hmm. And it was six weeks in Trinidad. But 42 days... You're counting every minute. We was in the cells nearly 24 seven. We'd just walk around the yard five minutes a day. The food was horrible. <laughs> and we just have a, a half a loaf of bread you'd have to make last. And, um, uh, you know, I never knew how long I had to be there. Wow. Now, you learn to adapt. It's amazing what you can adapt to. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you don't know how long you have to be there, that is, that's the tormenting thing. So the British consulate were coming to visit us. Remember this guy, he was a Scots guy, and a black beard. He looked like Cat Stevens, the singer. Mm. He used to be Cat Stevens, he, he converted to Islam. His name is, uh, he got another name now, Yusef Islam his name is now. But he looked like Cat Stevens, okay, the singer. Well-known singer in the 70s. And uh, it was a bit of a dude, you know, this Scots guy who worked for the British consulate. And uh, I, you know, I got on well with this guy. And, um, you know, but the long and short of it is that my friend's father came up with some money. And I think that helped us to get out. And the British consulate, I think, did their bit. Anyway, 42 days, we were out of there. But the week before we got out, we were told that there's a very good chance we will get out. Okay. And we're excited, but you have to try to control your excitement. Hmm. It's like, it feels like forever that I've been in this communist prison, man. I'm just a kid of 19, you know, and um, I'm adapting to it. 
my hand has been broken by the police before I got so, in. So you never had any doctor's attention? Nothing. No medical attention. Goodness it is goodness. grotesque. My bone is sticking out here. Wow. And it just, I had to heal on its own. And I was in agony, you know. Nothing was done to it. So that was difficult. So um, the week before we, we actually did get out, we went to court. And we're trying not to get it too excited because it may not happen that we could be on a plane back to London. We went to court, they're you know, jabbing away in Yugoslavia, obviously. And the long and short of it is they translate, you'll have to go back to prison because your defense counsel hasn't shown up. I'll tell you about it. That was one of the worst moments of my life up until that point. We had one more week to wait. It was the longest week of my life. I went back into the cell. The guy that I was sharing a cell with, he just laughed in my face. And I had to do everything I could to not attack him hmm. and beat his head because I'm just a kid of 19, man. I'm in a communist prison. I'm scared. This is a big deal. We might get a long sentence in a communist prison. It's a huge deal, man. Hmm. And uh, um, he just laughed in my face. Uh, and somehow we get through the week, you know, and, you know, we went back to court and, you know, eventually that, you know, they said you know, that we, we can go now uh, and we're, we're, they released us. We're on a plane. We only just got out of the country because we nearly didn't get out of the country that, as well. Anyway, we come, we come back to, to London and, and that was the adventure over. Uh, and then shortly afterwards, I moved up to London with my friend because we didn't want to be in our hometown because it was a big deal in our hometown. It was all over the papers and, you know, we, we moved up to London. Oh, really? Yeah. So at this point, before your hitchhiking adventure, you were not living in London anymore. You were living in Horsham, was it Horsham? Yeah, a, a town in the south, near the south coast uh, of England. Um, and I didn't want to stay in my hometown. So that was in the papers? Yeah, it was in the papers. What you, <laughs> goodness me. Yeah, just people coming up to me all the time, you know, just because wow. it was a big deal. So then you moved to London. Yeah. What did you do there in terms of work? Whatever I could. But you know, I walked around the streets of London, man, just giving out leaflets. I had a job in the King's Road in a warehouse. But you see, I never knew what I was good at, George. And um, again, going back to the father wound. And, um, you know, I, I went from one job to another. I lived by impulse, by instinct. I did find a job in London, in this warehouse, like I say, and a couple of months I stuck it. Is this when you got into drugs? Because I remember you telling me about drugs, especially things like um, heavy drugs. Well, I got into drugs in Europe when we were hitchhiking in Europe. And I, I just got turned on to, to, to marijuana, to dope, you know, and um, that lasted quite a few years. And you had this experience, as far as I remember, I remember you telling me years ago, where you took something, I don't know what you took, but then you, lost your mind for like hours yeah yeah what that was that? that was LSD um, okay. I mean that was a bit later but I got I got into uh, smoking dope marijuana in Europe with other travelers you know okay yeah. so I, I got turned on to that but you know there's a lot of things happening when I'm 19 when I come back 
because my mother, I saw my mother again for the first time. She was in Los Angeles. She'd emigrated to Los Angeles, to Santa Monica, sorry, in California. She'd married another guy and had a baby. And she was out of my life since I was like 13 when I first started getting in trouble with the police. Six, seven years later, uh, reckless teenage years, criminal record. I've just come out of prison. I meet my mother again. How? She'd come back to England. But how did you meet her? Even, even so, well, she made well, she made contact with me. Okay, not by accident. Yeah, yeah, she made contact with me, with my foster mother. Okay. But it's like I'm nineteen, twenty now. Yeah. And I'm like a different person. Uh, radically different. I've got a criminal record. I've just come out of prison. <laughs> right. I'm a confused kid, really. Yeah. But I'm also. Um, when I was in prison, I prayed to God for the first time in my life. And actually that was also a major turning point, major turning point. Because actually God heard my cry. What made you pray to God? I was desperate, man. Costa, <laughs> <laughs> that guy made you pray to God? It's like, no, I was bored, something to do. No, no, I was desperate. And I, you know, I was desperate. And um, I just was, you know, God, help me, you know, get, get me out of here. But you know, uh, I I didn't know what, I didn't even know who God was. I didn't know what God was. Yeah. I didn't even know if God existed, you know. I just was desperate, you know. But actually I found out God very much was real. And um, you know, when I was in London, I couldn't think of, I couldn't think about anything else but God. Wow. Really weird. After the prison? Yeah. Wow. I was, I started to really change because I'd gone from a football hooligan to hitchhiking around Europe for adventure in prison and I started to write poetry wow. I started walking through the forest I started mellowing out I was smoking dope but I was changing I was becoming a bit of a hippie and actually I became a hippie so I, I basically attached to another subculture right. rather than football hooliganism in fact getting into dope mellowed me down because if I hadn't done that you know I maybe had stayed with the crime and, and ended up in prison in England yeah and got into a violent crime or something. Yeah, you know. Heavy. So actually, um, in a way, uh, I kind of, I, 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 you know, I mellowed out, and my, I went in another direction because I was started thinking about God, writing things like that, going for walks in the forest, mm. really mellowing out, you know. LSD. <laughs> well, it, well, as they say, you know, uh, cannabis is a gateway drug, mm. and I didn't think so at the time, but it was for you it was and it became a lifestyle but I you know I was searching for God as well so you already had spiritual experience that was following you well I wouldn't say I hadn't I had a spiritual I I actually um, two years later at the age of 21 from when I got out of prison got back to England met my mum for the first time I was 20 now which was a, just a surreal experience meeting my mother mm. So I hadn't met other before. Uh, I was 13. What about, did that bring up in you? Well, I wasn't interested. I was quite indifferent. But I was a confused, insecure kid, really. But I, you know, I had a criminal record. I was... Yeah. I had no clue what I was doing, man, with my life. And that encounter... After you, you 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 met your mom, how did you how did that impact you in any way or or not really? Well, I I was still processing the fact that I'd spent six weeks in a communist prison. I'd been beaten up severely by police, which yeah. was a trauma in itself. 
Yeah. So I had, I had the trauma of being beaten up by the police badly. The prison itself at 19 was a trauma. And now I'm, you know, getting into drugs as well, thinking about God, and then my mum shows up. All of this is going on in my life. Interesting. At 19, 20. You know, big things. And, um, yeah, another turning point, yeah? Yeah. So meeting my mum again was another turning point. The prison was a turning point. And I'm living in London, and, uh, you know, I went to visit my mum, and it was just so difficult. Really difficult. She's got another child. She's married with another kid. And it's like a nice, close-knit, cosy family. Hmm. But I don't fit in, because I've never fitted in anywhere, right? Because hmm. um, that's part of the wound of, with people from my background. You don't belong anywhere. You don't know where you fit. Wherever you go, you don't fit. And, um, you know, that, that goes deep because that's also about belonging and identity as well. So anyway, um, during my 20s, you know, I, I basically attached to another subculture and, and become a hippie, really. And so I took a lot of drugs in my 20s. I'm in and out of jobs, labouring. But, you know, here's the thing. I had an opportunity to learn a trade. I could have become a plumber or a kitchen fitter. I had an interview to be a kitchen fitter. And on the interview, and this is the father wound right here, man. I had an opportunity to learn a trade and it was a, it was a turning point because I didn't have a clue what to do on the interview. I had to make a joint, not a, not a marijuana joint, but <laughs> <laughs> I had to make this dovetail joint or some kind of joint to see if I could pass the interview and they would take me onto the course and I'd be trained as a kitchen fitter and I a kitchen fitter and I really wanted to do it because I thought this would be really good if I could learn a trade that'll just set me up I'll have a trade I'll have something to turn to yeah I didn't have I froze on the interview I didn't know what to do I was standing there I was looking I think I don't even know what to do and all the other kids were just getting on with it. They knew what to do. Hmm. I tell you, that's a painful memory. Yeah. And I, I just, looking at it, I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. And I froze. I remember the, the guy that was looking at us, the instructor, he was looking over at me. And I just didn't have a clue. I didn't know what to do. Wow. And I think I just walked out. Uh, and, I, and it never happened. I had an apprenticeship also in plumbing. I didn't have a clue. Didn't know what to do. That deep father wound, you have self-doubt. Yeah. I don't know what to do, because I never had anyone to teach me how to use my hands. To bring the little boy out, say, come on, I'll show you what you can do. I had no one to do that, ever. And I never have. Mm. And so, um, and that goes deep. So, Nigel, it seems to me now, as you were sort of getting into that new story after the prison in Yugoslavia, after meeting your mom, after having the spiritual, you pray to God and you're beginning to live with a spiritual awareness of a, of a new kind and then getting into drugs. Um, I'm just aware of the time because we've been here for a while and your story, you honored your story so well in telling it in so much detail. So I don't want to, to make this too quick, like the second part of your journey. It feels like, it feels as though um, we've reached some point, some, another turning point at the time you're 19. It feels like this is chapter one. So I think we should just, 
we should just do chapter two next time when you visit instead of instead of rushing too much so but before we wrap up for today could you maybe give us a quick two three sentences just just a summary of your life so far where you're at in your heart in your mind at this point well i don't know if you've heard of the saying a mother gives you roots and a father gives you wings to fly roots and wings if you don't have that you've got no foundation to build on and on which to fly into your destiny and your true identity because you've you've not been formed uh, by what really should form you and shape you your mother and father home trust uh, the essentials in those formative years to sum up I had no roots and no wings to fly so and uh, I agree with what you said about chapter one I think yes this be, it's a good way of looking at it and as we kind of summarize really chapter one uh, of my life of my story um, no roots and no wings to fly and because of that all of those symptoms that I explained in this first chapter um, you know getting into trouble with the police um, crime a different identity being formed football hooliganism breaking the law um, and then adventure hitchhiking around Europe prison and now in London uh, I'm beginning to change and thinking about God because I had prayed in prison in Yugoslavia and I'm thinking about God all the time I'm drawn to God you know and spiritual things uh, but I've met my mother for the first time so um, the, the summary of my first 20 years it is you know what comes to mind there's there's any number of words that you could put it in a nutshell it's not easy to put it in a nutshell mm. but I would put it in a nutshell by saying that I had no roots and no wings mm. and so therefore I'm like a broken winged bird locked up inside a tiny cage um, not able to fly mm. because the broken wing is because of the no roots and the no foundation and the trauma of my early childhood so I've got no roots no identity that's been formed so in terms of flying I'm playing catch up and in fact I'm playing catch up for the next probably 30 years or more Mm. which we'll go into in the next chapter we'll go into this in the next chapter yeah yeah and i just want to say to the people that actually the next chapter in many ways there's great redemption because um you were a marginalized kid but just to give a little bit of um yeah of a spoiler um you got educated you became a teacher you also studied in um was it university or college in the united states yeah university yeah i mean yeah. and university here as well yeah yeah i so mean the street boy we need sure. to give I know you don't think much of that, of your own achievement in, in terms of the mainstream, um, what was available, but just look at it, the street boy, mm. then not only did I have a teaching degree and be, became a teacher in a, in a school, but also had a university degree. Um, and how many university degrees actually? Uh, well, I've got two, There you go. Uh, but I've got another teaching qualification as well, but obviously we're moving into chapter two or three yes. now uh, in my story. Yes. Um, which is all part of my story yeah. and organic to my story. 
Yeah, so there has been a lot of change and we're going to go into this next time. Yeah. Nice, that was great, man. Yeah. Well, th well, thank you, George. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for honouring me and giving me the opportunity to, to speak about what has been chapter one of my story. Yeah. And I'll see you next time. Yeah, looking forward to next time. Yeah.